Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. Luke chapter 10 is where we're at. I'm so appreciative, like, just that the Lord gives us just a family, and I just love that family. It's really freeing to be with you guys and be in, be in fellowship with you guys. I appreciate it. Um, Jesus has been showing the disciples the way, how to live life. So these are great chapters. Chapter 9, we took three weeks going through chapter 9 um, because these are so central to how we live. I think it's okay to stop and meditate a little bit on them. Jesus models how to do things, and then he asks his followers to do the same thing. And throughout the last few chapters, we've seen people react to Jesus in very different ways. Some of them follow, some of them don't. Um, some of them follow in one way, and they have to get corrected a little bit. Some people respond to correction, some people don't. And then we get to chapter 10. After these things, that's the context, the Lord appointed 70 others also. And he sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. So we're running out of time before the cross. And Jesus expands the ministry one more time. Um, there are places that need to hear the good news. Some argue Jesus, with this extension of 70, actually made announcements and traveled to nearly every little village and town within Israel at the time. So if that's the case, uh, he needed more people to do that. So as with the 12, their job is to run ahead of Jesus, gather the crowd, get people ready so he could hit two, three towns in one day. And, and the crowd's ready to hear his teaching. And their job was to run into a place and say, Jesus is coming. Jesus is on his way. He's going to be here soon. Get ready to meet Jesus. And if you want to meet Jesus, stop what you're doing. Come out into the, court, into the central courtyard and be ready to hear his message when he arrives. And then they would just wait with anticipation for Jesus to arrive. And I was reading through that idea of the 70 going out. And I'm like, this is no different than what he's asked us to do is to go out and tell people Jesus is coming, stop what you're doing and get ready for Jesus to arrive. And just making that life shift. It says the Lord, I want to point this out, verse 1, after these things, the Lord appointed. Uh, Luke is a confessed believer, and even though he's writing this with all the historical mechanics, he makes mo no pretense about what he believes at this point. Jesus isn't a character, it's his personal Lord that he's writing about. At this point in the gospel, that shift to just calling Jesus the Lord is because Jesus has explained himself and he's shown himself publicly and before witnesses to exhibit that power and authority. The 70 here, tons of theories around why he picked 70 people. And I'm just going to blitz you through just a couple. Um, at the end of the day, this is the thing that we Christians argue about that just doesn't matter that much. The number seven is the number of divine perfection or completion. When you add zeros in the Jewish thing, it doesn't change the meaning of the seven that's there. There are some symmetries with the work that went with Moses. Remember in Exodus 24, Moses picked 70 elders to help him administer Israel. And if Jesus is setting up a new kingdom, it's mirroring what happened in the Old Testament. And the 70 elders may go with the elders of Moses. Here's another thought. At this time in the first century, the Sanhedrin were also modeled after the elders of Moses in that there were 70 leaders of the Sanhedrin. So if Jesus is making a counter- um, mirroring religion to Jewish, if he's abandoning the Jewish temple and the Jewish religion, then the 70 that he sends out here could be overseeing the religious practice in the same kind of model that it looks like that. 
I'm going to say from the perspective of Luke, and if we look at the progression of Luke, the ministry starts with Jesus, then it goes to the 12, and now it goes to 70, and everything gets repeated. So Jesus goes out and tells people about himself. The 12 go out in groups of two and tell people about Jesus. Now the 70 go out in groups of two and tell people about Jesus. So you have this kind of multiplication that we've talked about before that, that is part of what I think Luke is showing, and that multiplication is going to get into the thousands when we hit the book of Acts. So this just keeps growing, and Luke's showing us how the entire religion of Christianity got founded, and between Luke and Acts, we get the entire narrative of that multiplication process. The idea of two-by-twos, same pattern that we had back in, in Luke chapter 9, and it mirrors Mark uh, 6, verse 7, uh, of what he did with the 12. And it uses the same phrase, before his face into every city. Luke again notes the public nature of Jesus' ministry. Nothing Jesus did was in secret. He did not find golden tablets in his basement. He did not get a secret message on the Himalayan mountaintops. There was no um, you know, golden voice in someone's bedroom that came to them. What Jesus did was absolutely public and into the face of and before everyone that was in these cities. And he said where he himself was about to go, Jesus models, and then he has these people go and do the same thing. So Jesus has done it first, and then Jesus is coming behind. Literally, he's the vanguard, and he's the rear guard. And he praises, when it comes to the movement of the church, he's gone in front, and he's coming behind. And none of that's changed for us today. He's gone in front with the cross. He's coming again with his second coming. Everything we do is bookended by what Jesus is going to do and what he will do, what he has done. Then in verse 2, then he said to them, the harvest is truly great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. It's funny. We just got done talking about that. So go your way. He's still sending us out today. This hasn't changed. So what we're looking at right now is the building of a church and the mechanics of a church and how we're supposed to work. Our nature in Christ is to be like a lamb. We hang out with the flock, we love the flock, we connect with the flock, and the flock follows a shepherd. And the shepherd has a crook and, and, and can go before us, can go behind us. Uh, the shepherd shows us where to go and how to do things, and that holds true for the church today. This is why it's so dangerous when you see packaged church plans on how to grow and how to build a church. Those packaged plans are human intentions, not the following of the Holy Spirit. But they follow a church. And Jesus is instructing them as they go out, they're supposed to go out like lambs, which means follow the shepherd. So we go out before Jesus to announce his coming, to invite folks, hey, we want you to hear what Jesus has to say. There's going to be a Bible study on this night or this day. Come and hear it. Come listen to the word of God get taught. And it says, therefore pray. This is interesting. He doesn't say go out into the harvest, therefore charge and attack people. He says, go out into the harvest, therefore pray. That's an interesting thing. I think a praying is, if that's the primary action that comes out after there's lots of laborers, it means that prayer is the primary action of the church. Think of the construct of verse 2. The harvest is truly great, the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest sends out laborers into his harvest. It isn't that there's lots of harvest out there, therefore you go charge. You don't charge unless God sends you. And so we pray for God to do the sending. Maybe it's me, maybe it's the person next to me, but we want the harvest to be had, so we pray for it. 
And then I felt really convicted because I think, how often do I sit and in my prayer time with the Lord, how often do I pray for the harvest? And, and if that's one of the primary things that he's instructing the 70 to do, how much less for me that I should be actually praying for those things, aligning my will with harvest. If I'm aligning my will with the harvest and I go out to a restaurant and the Holy Spirit nudges me to talk to the waiter or waitress, well, I'm aligned with that intention when I woke up in the morning and I'm then looking for those opportunities when I go through my day. So we come together on a Sunday to study together. We go out on Monday to evangelize for six days. And we're thinking, Lord, who do you want me to talk to? Where do you want me to go? Who should I be inviting? So we pray, and that's the starting part of this. Prayer is central. If This becomes the first clear instruction for evangelizing to pray. Verse 3 is to go. That would be the second clear instruction. We can pray all we want, but if we never actually go out and tell people about Jesus Christ, we're failing in the basic commands of evangelism. And this gets different with different denominations. you got some denominations that are happy to pray all the time and they never go. And you got other groups of people that are happy to go, but they never pray and wait for a calling. And so there's this balance or discernment that we're going to get through all of chapter 10, where there's, a, there's something we have to figure out, which is a narrow path in between those two mistakes. The harvest here, imagine you're a farmer and all your fields are ready to go, but you don't have enough people to collect and gather the harvest. That would be heartbreaking. That's just for the economy of God, that's just money in the field that you're, you, you're not collecting because you, you can't hire enough workers to bring it in. It would be heartbreaking for God that he's prepped all these hearts ready for the gospel to be shared, and then we never share it with people. And imagine answering for that in heaven. Hey, I had prepped these three people, put them right in your path. They were your, sitting next to you at a coworker. You could see that person was upset, and I nudged you to go talk to them, and you never even bothered because you're too busy about yourself. And when those kinds of things happen, I think, man, I don't, I don't want to, from today forward, I don't want to miss one more opportunity to share the gospel with somebody I run into. Boy, if the Lord nudges me, I don't care about what they think. I don't care about what my boss thinks. I don't care about, I'm going to share what Jesus has for them and the hope of Jesus. The word send out in the Greek is ekbalo. It means to cast out or to expel with force. It's literally to shove somebody out. So when God sends out his workers, he shoves them with force. They're, they can't not do it, right? There's a connotation of command here. God's power sends out his workers even as we pray for it. And so when we pray for it, we pray for the workers to go out. But when they go out, they go out with power and force. God has done so much to prepare these fields. He wants his harvest. He will send out godly people to go get it. And he'll send them out as lambs amongst wolves. What an interesting phrase to throw in there. And again, when Jesus gives these instructions, like, I want to take them to heart. What's my disposition when I go talk to somebody about the gospel? How do I share the gospel with people in a biblical way? And if, my, if the attitude I'm supposed to be had, or we can call it sheepiness, if I'm supposed to be sheepy when I talk to people, then I think, one, I need to, the sheepiness is to, one, trust the leading of the shepherd. And, and be awake and have your ears open to hear and your eyes open to see when God gives you those nudges and opportunities to go. And when they happen, I think they'll be in force. Number two, a sheepy attitude is we stay with the flock. The church is highly functional in evangelism. You'll notice in a broken American church today that you have parachurch organizations doing ministry disconnected from churches. And it's not working. Nationally, we're falling away from Christ 
more than we're falling towards Christ. And part of that is to be following the Lord's leading, to stay with the flock. Man, wouldn't it be great if all those parachurch organizations just went right back into churches and pushed their pastors? You know, we need to do more of this and that and this, and we're going to do it with the church and invite people and train people from within the church. Number three, sheepiness is about a humility and a feeble nature. Sheep are generally not aggressive animals. They headbutt once in a while, um, but they're generally extremely feeble. And they're an odd animal because I don't know how they would survive without humans. Maybe that's breeding. Maybe that's 5,000 years of domestication. But sheep do not naturally exist. In, in They even grow too much fur, right? So they can, they can grow fur to the point where they, they become blind. They can't even see anymore. They can grow fur to the point where they trip on it and they can't follow themselves. Without the shepherd's grooming, without humility before Christ, we become blind and we trip over ourselves. And we start doing things that we call evangelism, but they're not lambs amongst wolves. We're wolves going out amongst wolves. And sheep are very different animals. Verse 3 says, Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs amongst wolves. I, would have, I want to appreciate the word behold in that sentence, which obviously means to look at something. And I think this is for Jesus, like he's talking to these 70 people and he goes, look, I'm going to send out lambs amongst wolves. And you'd think the result of that would be a lot of dead lambs. But the result of that's quite the opposite. And that's what we're supposed to see. When we go out meekly and humbly sharing how awesome the flock is, some of those wolves actually put away their teeth and take on, and they, they become sheep. And it doesn't work the way the flesh would say it would work. We go out into the world, and I think often we think what the world has is more powerful, more alluring. And we're trying to convince people to leave it. And that's not the image you get with harvest and sheep. If someone is ripe for the harvest, they've tried the world and they've seen how worthless it is. And all they're looking for is fellowship and family and something different in their life. They've tried that other thing and they've found it wanting. So when we go out as sheep amongst wolves, the wolves sometimes will say, what does it look like to be a sheep? And how could I change my nature? And we're like, Christ will build a new person inside of you. You'll create a new life. So when we look at how God builds his kingdom, he builds it with sheep. And we find the positive in everything we do. There's a disposition here. Look at what God's doing. So not only do we go out, not only do we pray and then we go, we also have our eyes open to see what happens. And I think this is the best part. This is why we come back and we share what God's doing. And we have conversations, why we have an agape lunch. It's why we have snacks and, and, and time to pray at the end of the evening service. Like all of that's designed for us to share what God's doing in our lives. If we never share it with each other, we're not beholding and looking and seeing it and sharing it with the flock. So again, you can pull this stuff. What Jesus gives these instructions. What's amazing to me is we think we know better how to do evangelism than how Jesus instructed it. And we think we can improve upon it. We think we can make it move faster or better. We think we can make the, the harvest be more or less ripe based on our actions. And there's a, there's a thought there that is extremely human and in the flesh. And I would implore you to read this section again and again and again and see what Jesus is actually asking of us. And in that, there is fruit. And then you just say, look at what God's doing. Look at who God brings together. Jesus gives more detail on how to travel like a lamb in the next few verses. Verse 4. Carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals, nor greet anyone along the road. You'd think, how unfriendly to not even greet people. 
We'll get into that. But whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it'll return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Don't go from house to house. Whatever city you enter, they receive you. Eat such things as they set before you. We saw Jesus travel like this in chapter 9. Now he's teaching others to travel. I just want to point out, he did it first, then he asked people to do it. Chapter 9, verse 3, the 12 traveled and he told them to travel light. Now the 70 are traveling and he's telling them to travel light. So this is a consistent way that he's multiplied the ministry. Why would we think that's any different for the church today? Why would we think that these things don't, that carry neither money bag? It's, it, I find this fascinating. If God has pushed you out to go tell somebody about the gospel, why do you think you need funding or money to do that? And yet we have an entire missionary complex that's built on getting people to raise funds. Why? If God has pushed you into the missions field, why do you need funding to do that? He, what he doesn't need is, is a population of Christians that are constantly looking to fill their money bags. And money becomes a source of real distraction and real e evil in the work of God. We're supposed to trust in God and that there will be natural provision that comes with it. What does the provision look like? Um, well, we'll get to the, the piece on this house piece, but the greeting no one along the road, all right? This is, I think, unique to the culture at the time. Often at this time, there would be elaborate meetings on the road that would slow people down. This was a tradition in the first century. The idea is they're not supposed to get distracted by empty greeting and idle talk and gossip along the way. Because you'd meet somebody on the road and you'd say, what's the news from this town? So you'd spend hours just sharing the news in both directions so that news would move around faster and idle talk. It was generally empty. It was generally not relational because you're both on the road. You both got somewhere to go. So these were these short, empty, meaningless relationships you'd get on the road. But when you come into town and you stay in somebody's house, you're talking about long, deeper relationships, relationships with people that welcome you into their home. So peace to this house. I think this is interesting because this is authority that he offers to the 70. This authority, I think we can presume we have it too. That when you walk into somebody's house and they're going to feed you and give you a meal, to walk into that house and say peace to your house or to pray a blessing on that house when you walk in the door. There's a power behind that because you're giving a gift that God's given you authority to give. And if you're a believer and you're following Jesus, you just got the power of an almighty God to bring peace to a home or not bring peace to a home. Isn't that significant? To the point where I think people can notice that or not notice it. There's the phrase here, son of peace. They're using the term some of, uh, which means somebody that has the essence of peace or the quality of peace. Just like when we use son of man or son of God, it means to have the essence of man or the essence of God. To be in, embodied with that peace that happens. I think you meet certain people and there's just a peace about them. Um, honestly, we were just at the Michael and Danny's wedding, who, by the way, they're off on their honeymoon. Hi, Michael and Danny, if you're listening. Um, they are off enjoying a new marriage, but we got to hang out at a wedding and run into other believers that we didn't really know that well. We're just getting to know them. But there's a piece that uh, Steph and I spent a whole evening hanging out with a couple that was there for photography. And we we're just like, man, these are Jesus people. And you just feel this peace. There's a connection with them. They have the, the spirit of Jesus in them. And the phrase here, son of peace, I totally get it as a Christian. 
Like you run into these people and they're just your brothers and sisters and you barely even know them. But they have similar connections to Jesus. So Jesus, is, as he's sending them out to prepare the way for Jesus, he's assuming that God's prepared people in every town that want to welcome Christians. And if they don't welcome Christians, we'll get to that too. But you walk into a town or a community, there's going to be people that love that you're a believer. There might also be people that don't love that you're a believer. Then verse 7, again, these are really interesting verses. Then remain in the same house. What does that mean? When you give your blessing and they give their hospitality, you're supposed to actually stay there. And there's different ways to think about this. One way to think about it is you're not supposed to angle for better lodgings. What if the person who welcomed you into their house is broke and poor and you're sleeping on a dirt floor? And all you can think is, well, the rich person in town just said I could stay at their house too. So as the ministry grows and you're telling more people about it, and you're thinking, man, I could get a little better place to sleep if I move around. Jesus specifically says not to do that. Stay in the same house that initially welcomed you because they get a blessing from God. So be humble and be loyal to the person who first showed you welcome. This is interesting. It's an indication that the relationship is important. The human instinct is to make a hundred shallow relationships and call that an expanding ministry. But Jesus encourages one deep relationship and connection being better than going house to house. I want to point out the irony that you also have a lot of ministries that literally go house to house, knocking on doors, trying to build a hundred shallow relationships contrary to the instructions Jesus gave. Why, as, why do we as Christians rather do it our way than do it the way Jesus said to do it? And so, and people are, well, door to, you got to go door to door. We have to hit every house. Why? Where in the Bible does it say to do that? And so when you look at Jesus' instructions in context, he's training these people for evangelism and he's telling them to build deep relationships and find those connections. Eating and drinking such things as they give. So, I like this goes two ways. One, what if they serve horrible food? And the idea is like, accept what they give. Like, eat at the level that the people who have blessed you are going to eat. And I think God's going to protect you in that. The other thing is like, we have this thing today where people get like, I got things with dairy and gluten, so does Grant. And you get people that like push their eating preferences on other people. Have you ever hosted someone like that? You've prepared all this food and they're like, oh, I can't eat that. I can't do this and I can't do that. Instead, just like, don't put your preferences on your hosts, right? And, and well, I need to eat this. Well, they're great. Bring something in a Ziploc bag and, you know, but be graceful for what you get. Eat what you can. It also informs them if you eat and drink such things that are given to you, then what if they don't give you anything? And what if you have to go a little hungry when you do evangelism? And what if, what if like, the temptation would be to raise more funds, ask for more, go to the house that has better food. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. Just take what you get. The laborer is worthy of his wages, right? So Jesus doesn't see this as charity. I think he's framing their thinking here. When I go into a house and I'm there to share the gospel, I've blessed them with peace. They've let me stay there. It's a fair thing to eat the food because you're doing the gift of sharing the gospel and teaching them the word, it's okay for them to give you or gift you a good food or wages for doing that. And Paul has the same, he reflects what Jesus says here um, when he's talking to Timothy and saying, hey, it's okay for a church to support you. That's a, not a bad thing. But, and then emphasizing don't go from house to house. At, for, at face value, um, you, can, you can read into this all you want and explain it all you want, but I hear Jesus saying, don't go house to house. It's not a good method. It doesn't work. The other piece for that, and, and I, okay, you're going to see how much of a curmudgeon I am. 
let's be honest. If you're busy doing something at home, you're in the middle of a project and you get people that knock on your door with nice little white shirts and ties, are you excited when those people knock on your door? Like, I got to admit, like, I am these days. The kids are funny because I'll be like, oh, Mormons. And I get super excited. But let's be real honest. Like, the door knocking, door-to-door thing, you're invading someone's home, private time, and space. And generally speaking, for not nutso Bible teachers like me, it's an inconvenience when somebody you don't know knocks at your door. It's not welcomed. And so when we see Jesus saying that, just at face value, to knock on somebody's door without a relationship with the person that lives in that house is not necessarily something Jesus commands for us to do. So why? There's discomfort, there's pressure, there's intensity, there's assumptions, it's hard to avoid. What you, there's this issue of recruiting, fundraising. That, those are a lot of things that the flesh, the world, and I think even demonic influence puts on the church to misdirect the church and how we follow the Holy Spirit. Trust that the Lord's going to bring those relationships. You pray, go out, be ready to share. And if you do those things, then you can then behold what God does. But if you go out with a plan and an agenda and a master organization system and everything goes great, who gets the glory for that? Does Jesus get the glory or do you get the glory? And let's be honest, who, should, who do you really want to get that glory? So not only should we not be doing these things, we should be shunning these things. I want Jesus to get the glory, not your master plan. And to react and do those sorts of things, frankly, you'll have Christians that call you less than fervent because you will run into Christians that feel like you're not holy enough if you don't buy into their plan for evangelism. But your job is to do what God has pushed you out to do. Nothing more, nothing less. And there's great freedom in that. So being a lamb-like or lammy evangelist is to pray verse 2, go verse 3, be like a sheep, travel light, no material concerns, build deep relationships versus networking, verses 5 through 7, accept and give peace and kindness and be received by people. Like, be a friend that's worthy of people being friendly to you. And there is a confounding element to people that just get along and they're good friends and we will be known by how we love one another. The more other people see us in a fellowship, the more convicting that is for them that there is a way to live life where you can just be family with people, even if you have nothing else in common than Christ. That's a beautiful thing. Verse 9, Heal the sick there and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near you. What a bold thing to say for a Christian. That if it's just you and me hanging out, and I pray for healing, and there's healing that happens to say, you know what, you just got really close to the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God is me healing you. What, a, what a, an amazing thing. No miracle necessarily, just the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter, and they don't receive you, go out into the streets and say, the very dust of your city which clings to you, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come near you. Same message. So whether accepted or rejected, either way, we pronounce the kingdom of God just came clear. And, and you know, that take, for me, that there's a certain like, not pride, not arrogance, but it takes a boldness to say that, to know that you're in a relationship with Jesus Christ to the point where you can say that when I'm hanging out with you, you just got close to the kingdom of God because I'm in the kingdom of God. How do you say that if you're not in the kingdom of God? So if there's doubt, if there, oh, I don't know, where am I at? 
and that sort of thing, you got to get back to church and get in fellowship with people. You have to be confident that you know what the kingdom of God is and that when you're hanging out, you represent that kingdom as an ambassador. Either way, God makes this known in his power, the healing of verse 9 or the judgment in verse 12. God's going to reinforce whichever thing happens on those people you share the gospel with. This is an, I think this is interesting because we don't have to feel obligated to win everyone over because sometimes ripening the harvest is that they reject me and they experience things in their life that are not good. And then when you come around to evangelize to them again, they say, this time I'm ready to accept Jesus. I remember what happened last time somebody said the kingdom of God is... And how many times does God bring the kingdom of God near to people before they accept Christ? How many cycles do we have to go through? And the reality is we don't know. We have no idea. So when we meet people, the kingdom goes with us. The life we live purely adds credibility to the claim. Hypocrites don't get this benefit or this power. If you're not living it, you can't say that you are. That's using Jesus' name as a false name. You're using his name in vain. We're lambs, we're pure, innocent, we're graceful, we're kind. We've dealt with our history and thrown it away and we're putting our eyes on Christ moving forward. We have clarified the lines in our life between the holy and the profane. It's easy to be rude to rude people, convicting to be rude to a lamb. If we're doing our part right, if people reject us, that's just like heaping coals on their head, right? How do you be mean to a lamb? Right? But think about it. Is it easy to be mean to a rude Christian that's forcing themselves on you? Yeah, it kind of is easy to be rude to people like that. But then I don't get any condemnation for that as a non-believer. If I'm rude to a rude Christian, they're the ones responsible for being sheepy, not me. And so you think about this disposition and this attitude and the way in which we interact with people should be a way in which people want to get to know us because we're living in a life that's gracious and kind and loving and we love people that don't love us first, just like Jesus loved us before we loved him. We imitate Christ in how we behave. Showing kindness to people, showing graciousness. And then you get people that really they don't want the Christian around. Um, and Jesus has sent Christians in. He sent the kingdom in to show something to them. And then they don't want us around. He doesn't say go into a corner and hide. He doesn't say run away silently. He literally says go out into the streets. That's pretty bold. You know, and the streets for these people would be this public proclamation. So it's, again, it's, you get this thing and, well, isn't publicly proclaiming Jesus to be rude or impolite? No, right? These people have already heard and they've rejected the lamb and you say, the very dust of your city which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Think about this, like, I don't want anything from ungodly people. I don't want them to think that I stole from them or I took for them. Um, I want to just, you know, I want to take nothing from them. So not only am I not staying in somebody's house eating their food, I don't even want food in that town. And remember, we just went through this with the Samaritan village that rejected Jesus. He just, and he's just like, all right, well, I guess it's an inconvenience to us, but we'll keep walking. So he also did this with the Gadarenes when he sent the demons into the pigs and he just left. But he also sent a repented demon-possessed guy to go tell people about Jesus in that town. If they don't want you, leave them alone. We don't take anything from them. We don't claim anything from them. Purity becomes this significant witness here. 
If you're still pining for sin, you have nothing to offer somebody who's still pining for sin. You're like them. But if you're pining for purity and holiness, and that's become the dominant desire of your heart because you've been looking to Jesus for a long enough time, and you honestly want Jesus more than you want this world, that's a compelling thing to bring to people. Wide awake and alive Christians that aren't dabbling with sin half time, those people become phenoms with, the, with, an, with a sinful world, a whole world that's gone astray to have even one person living for purity and saying, I prefer purity. So all your buddies are getting drinks and you say, I don't want to drink. They're like, why won't you drink with us? Do you hide? Oh, you know, I just prefer a soda tonight. Or do you say, no, I've, I think in this culture, we've made way too big of a deal of alcohol. And I choose to be different because of Jesus Christ in my life and because I love you guys. And I don't want to take from this that I'm just joining you in your sin. I want you to take from this that I didn't join you in that sin and I still had a good time with you. Right? We don't want things to cling to us. Notice the dust clings to them. When we go into cities that hate Jesus, we go walking into those streets, there's stuff that's going to stick to us. When you start dabbling with sin or hanging out with people that sin, the quicker you can wipe the clinging stuff off and get away from them, the better. And nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. Just make sure you do it in the name of Jesus. Don't walk away from those relationships and not make them face Jesus in that, in that situation. You get a sense of fellowship with the receivers and not losing sleep over the rejectors. And that, to sum up Jesus' advice to the 70, hang out with the receivers no matter how, what kind of house they live in or what kind of food they serve. Be friends with those people, and when people reject you, don't lose sleep about it. Shake it off and move on. You know, it's interesting when we choose hate versus love, when we choose conflict over companionship, when we use fellowship over friendship. Like, there is something amazing. There's a Holocaust father of six. He survives the Holocaust. He watches the Germans kill every one of his six family members in front of his face. Why did they kill his family members? Because he spoke German and they needed him as a translator. And he refused to translate. So as he refused to serve and work with the Germans, they started killing off his wife and his children right in front of his face. He gets through the Holocaust, and they were, the amazing part is he didn't have post-traumatic stress disorder. He, he was healthy. He actually was physically bigger. He maintained his size. And it was started, they started to see this guy as almost like a miracle, like the, in Babylon when the, they were like, we'll just eat the vegetables, and then they got stronger. This guy actually like was fairly healthy at the end. And so they interviewed him asking, like, what do you think is going on? Like, did the Lord miraculously sustain you through the concentration camps? And he goes, no, I just saw what hate looked like, and I chose love. So instead of hating my captors, I chose to bless them and admonish them and give them the word of God. And this is a Jewish guy. He doesn't even have Jesus to do this with. But there's a physical, natural benefit to choosing love over hate. If you got people in your life and in your history that you have bitterness towards or hatred towards, it's going to eat you up from the inside out. That's probably the worst soul-destroying thing that can happen. Somebody rejects your Jesus and what your response is hatred. I think Jesus commands you to do the opposite. Just shake off anything that might cling to you and go seek Jesus in purity with your whole heart. You get to verse 12, and I think Jesus is helping build this psychology. Verse 12, But I say to you that it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. 
Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Look how he's modeling how to do this. Woe to you. You're the ones with the problems. You're rejecting Jesus Christ. You got issues. Or as uh, Gus said to Sam in the, the show called Psych, he just said, Sean, or to Sean, right? It was Sean and Gus. Gus just turns to Sean and goes, Sean, you need Jesus, man. And that's the sort of like, look at you. Look at what you're doing to yourself. Woe to you, Bethsaida. You need Jesus. If for the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it'll be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, you'll be brought down to Hades. Now, Capernaum's Jesus' home base. They got to see miracles. They got to see the feeding of the thousands. They got to see things. And the reasoning here is clear. The revelation of Jesus is far more clear and sufficient and complete for us than it was for them. So you could say the same thing today. Woe to you, Minneapolis, who has a much greater revelation of Jesus Christ than the people of Chorazin or Capernaum did. They hadn't seen the cross, and Jesus is saying this. The greater the revelation, the greater the knowledge base, the greater the accountability. So when you tell someone about Jesus, you need to recognize you're adding accountability to that person's life. And their rejection might make it worse for them at the judgment than if you had never shared it with them. Think about that for a second. There's a responsibility that you add to their life when you share the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's not a reason not to share it. It is a reason to think, wow, if you reject it, you've got the issues. It's not that I didn't share it the right way, or I didn't say it right, or I needed more classes on how to talk about Jesus. I shared with you what Jesus did in my life, and you reject it? Man, you need Jesus. There's something broken with you. And there's a conviction that comes with that. By the way, this will often take a non-believer and make them more angry at you, right? Because you're convicting their heart. And when you convict someone or you, you tap into something that makes them angry, they get more angry or they repent. God is smart enough to judge accordingly. People get messed up on these verses because it strongly implies that in the day of judgment, some will get greater judgment and some will get lesser judgment. Jesus uses those words, more than and less than. So to reject Jesus and the mighty works of Jesus is something that actually causes a degree of accountability or judgment at the end of days. And people say, what about the, the pygmy Amazons living in Antarctica and whatever? Well, part of this, I think one of the answers to that is I think God is smart enough to figure that out. And there's an accountability. Do, the, 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 do they worship the, themselves or do they worship the creator of everything they see? And you do see tribes that were not reached with the gospel that were entirely receptive to the gospel when they heard it because they were already worshiping the creator God of the universe. And one of the most interesting periods of history in that is looking at the hundreds of Native American tribes on the northern continent and the ones that accepted Jesus almost instantly and ones that killed the missionaries, right? And the differences between people have to do with the hearts and the leaderships of those communities. From the biblical perspective, um, God is going to judge and he will judge people differently based on the revelation they've been presented with. It's that simple. And so we struggle with that. We want to know exactly how it's going to work, but the Bible asks us to trust a good and loving and just God to deal with it the way God's going to deal with it. He knows the heart. God is extremely graceful in giving chances to people, merciful in his forgiveness, and he's just in his judgment, and in all three, he's loving above all. 
graceful, merciful, and just, and loving in all three. It is just to punish someone who deserves punishment and does not want mercy and won't receive grace. More tolerable, different conditions. The ability to tolerate or not tolerate something. <laughs> um, I think one perspective on this is, is it worse to lose a game? You just lost a game? Or is it worse to know that you lost a game because you didn't practice, try, or give your, your whole effort on the field? And for any athlete in the world, it's way worse to lose when you knew that you screwed it up. It was your lack of attention, your lack of responsiveness, your lack of training that made you lose the game. And your whole team is looking at you like, you lost the game for us. That's really tough. Versus going out on the field, giving it all you got, and then losing a game. You could be like, I put it all on the field. They just they played better than we did. Much easier to lose when you try as hard as you can. When I go to judgment before God, is it worse or better for me if I know I gave it everything I had or if I was lazy in my practice? I think it's going to be hard at judgment for those that don't respond to Jesus with everything they got. For lukewarm Christians, they're going to get spit out. For, for those that are against Jesus Christ, there's a consequence for them too. No one in hell, I think, will gripe about how unfair hell is. They're going to realize they deserved it or we wouldn't be serving a just God. They're going to recognize the justice of the punishment. They'll have the full revelation of God, the full clarity of God, and they'll actually have the full transparency of their own heart to know that their heart didn't want what God had to offer. So they miss it and they defile God. All of this prepares us as missionaries. Remember, he's preparing missionaries right now to understand when somebody re rejects Jesus Christ, that's between them and God. It's not on us. And so our job is to share and to do it all sheepy-like. It's their job to respond. And that's the harvest. So he says, at the judgment, I want to point out theologically, Jesus is pointing out a coming event, judgment. God will judge. And we tend to not like to talk about that, but the world will be judged, nations will be judged, cities will be judged in this passage, and we have other passages where individuals will be judged. So there are four different categories of judgment that will happen at the judgment seat at the end of time. And God will be judging all of them. Everyone has a conscience, everyone is individually judged. But cities with leadership of those cities have an accountability and responsiveness too. Did they keep law and order according to the Old Testament? Did they have fair and, and secure justice systems? Were the weights balanced in the economy of that city? Or were there corrupt people infiltrating that city at every level? Well, God's going to judge that too. He's going to judge civic behavior. It doesn't preclude or exclude individual judgment, but it does point out, and Jesus is saying here, that there will be judgments for different cities on the planet. And those judgments will be more or less tolerable in Jesus' words. So here's a question. How much light have you been given? I almost feel sorry for you because when we study through the word, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, you've been given a lot of revelation. And then you're responsible for what you do with that revelation. So it's dangerous coming to church. You've got to think about what you're hearing and what God's holding you accountable for when you come to church. And my job is not to lighten that load for you or that impact, but to be sheepy-like when I share it with you. I love you. I want you to know the truth so you can march how you should march. And when the Lord sends you somewhere, you know he's sending you somewhere. There's no doubt in your mind about what right and wrong are. You know how to respond to whatever the world's throwing into the news feed next. And, it, and even laugh a little bit. And be like, I don't want any of that dust to stick to me. Because that's what the world's got. 
Verse 16, he who hears you hears me. This is the benefit of all that accountability. He's sending 70 people out in power as ambassadors, and this is the benefit. He who hears you hears me. He who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Think about that. When somebody rejects you when you're sheepy-like with them, that's between them and God. He's stepping in. And they're literally rejecting Jesus Christ when they reject you. That should give you some boldness because you're on the right team. And I think that's part of what you know Jonathan taught last week, right? When it's you and God, you have the majority. And Jesus teaches that mentality to his disciples. There's a clear summary here. It's about him. We share in the name of Jesus, verse 17. It's his reputation that's at stake, not ours. We gave our life to him. Who cares about our reputation? You throw me in a jail cell if you want to. Put me on a stage in front of the kings of this world if you want to. Lord, whatever you want to do with me, it's your reputation, not mine. I'll serve you, not me. So if a king sends a messenger out and the messenger's humiliated, there's a condemnation on the, the humiliators for what they did to that messenger. And it stacks up on them. And the king has more grace and affection for the messenger that endures things on his behalf. Think of how David reacted to the messengers he sent to a foreign power and they shaved their beards and cut off their pants and sent them home half naked. Remember that? David showed extreme mercy with them. Stay in the city till your beards grow back. He didn't want his ambassadors to be humiliated in front of his own people. Whatever we endure for his name's sake, he endures for us. We gain reputation. Whoever did it to us, woe to you. Like, you guys need Jesus. I feel sorry for what's going to happen next because the kingdom of God just came close to you and you rejected it. Here's another take. Maybe this isn't so different. If it is about Jesus, it's not about you. And I think as Christians, this is tough because we like ourselves a lot, but all success and failure is to share in the work of God. And when we're concerned with representing ourselves, we take away from our own ministry. When we're concerned about our reputation, our job, how people react to us, what they think of us, it robs us of boldness. Oh, don't say that. They're going to get offended. Okay, you just lost your, your moral high ground. If they get offended, that's kind of their thing. How do we best represent God? Be bold and courageous, like he's told us a hundred times throughout the scriptures. Say it. Serve the king. Show your joy. Laugh when you want to laugh. Verse 17 shows this attitude. They go out as lamby lamb, sheepy-like people, and they come back with joy. Verse 17, the 70 returned with joy. This was awesome. You, Jesus, you wouldn't believe what we experienced. Saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Jesus didn't send them out saying they were to cast out demons. Did you see that at the beginning of the chapter? They go out sheepy-like and stuff happens. They, don't even, they weren't even, like God adds to the promises. It's better than what we're promised. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like a lightning from heaven. So they're all excited. They're casting out demons. The 70 people coming back. Judas is not among the 70. So these are faithful followers. This is the beginning of the church. And they're all excited about casting out demons. And I think this is interesting. Jesus is showing them the narrow path. He pulls them back from that a little bit. Is it cool to cast out a demon? I mean, yeah, come on. That's not so bad. You're feeling like you're really rocking it if you're casting out demons as a believer. And Jesus, I think, cautions them a little bit. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and 
over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Think of how he's setting up evangelists here on how to think. I think sometimes we go out and we share the gospel and we care about numbers. How many people did this or that? How many people said a prayer of salvation? How many people were healed? How many demons we cast out? And we start to tally those up like they mean something. And Jesus is like, don't worry about results. Be excited about the fact that your name is written in heaven. Think of that. God at some point wrote your name down. Not the name your parents gave you, but the name that God has given you that we're going to get to know when we get to heaven. We've got a name that God has given to us. It's powerful what's going on here. It's a joyful thing to be part of God's work, verse 17. Part of what God's doing, we're in the mix, we're in it. I got to tell you, there's nothing better. Like, I, I look forward to times when I can share my faith with people. All 70 returned. Not one of them was lost. God protected them in their travels, even though they went out with nothing. And they come back and they just have joy in their heart. The demons here um, is more than what they planned on, but notice the idea they're subject to us, verse 17, in your name. They figured something out on the road that when they did things in the name of Jesus, things happened. If you remove Jesus from the conversation, you lose power. And this is, takes boldness as a Christian. When you say, you know what? I'm going to pray in the name of Jesus that that thing gets healed. I'm going to pray that the will of God is done in the name of Jesus. And it seems like an odd thing, but God puts a lot of power in his word. And when he empowers us, what comes out of our mouth really matters. It's why we keep our mouths clean. It's why we're pure when we talk. But when we say in the name of Jesus, there is a power that goes out when we do and say that. And it's not like you feel all tingly, but things happen over here and you realize God just did something. And you use the words he's asked you to use so when we do things in his name, that's, that's it. To proclaim his name as a responsibility, we're told to do it, but there's power in it too. Not our power. We don't get all fancy. We're not like Popeye where we eat the spinach and we muscle out. It's not like that. There's no magic thing where we do this thing and God has to empower us. No. But we boldly do things in Jesus' name because he's told us to do it. I want to give a couple cautions with that too. Don't claim to do things in Jesus' name if you're living for sin in any way, shape, or form. If your eyes aren't on the cross pining for the, the purity and the holiness, and there's that part of you that still likes your sin over on the side, don't be using the name of Jesus. Watch out for that. And then here's the other side of that thing, a caution in the other direction. If you are, if in your heart maybe you fail sometimes and you sin and you backslide, but you know your heart is pining for Jesus Christ and you're trying to get rid of that sin, don't not use the power of the name of Jesus when you do things and pray for people. Like you're missing out on amazing power in your Christian walk if you're too cowardly to use the name of Jesus because you backslide once in a while. Like honestly, if your eyes are on Jesus and you're getting that, I heard this great phrase at the conference earlier this week. This old guy is getting up, he's teaching the word and he says, the older I get, the less I sin, but the more I recognize my sinfulness and how prevalent it is in my life. The less I sin, but the more I recognize my sinfulness. And I think that's true in the walk. Satan wants to use your recognition of sinfulness as a, an accusation that you're not going to heaven, you're not good enough, you're not pure enough. God wants to use the less sin part 
to make you a witness to other people. He knows you're sinful. He's forgiven that. But pursuing the name of Jesus, don't use it if honestly in your heart you're still more interested in sin. Do use it if you know that you're interested in the things of God. And don't skip out on that thing. Then Jesus uses this phrase, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Well, that's an interesting response. Jesus claims to have seen this happen, meaning he's existed prior to his physical manifestation, right? The other thing is, how does lightning hit the ground? And I'm thinking like a power smash, right? And sometimes in movies they're doing this well, especially in superhero movies, where you just got this instant smack that's going on. If Jesus got fell from heaven at the speed of lightning bolt, that's not just poetic language, right? Lightning is a natural demonstration of the force of God. You ever sit out in a thunderstorm and just dig on it and go, man, there's so much power in the atmosphere and whatever. And you realize that this vivid, instant, amazing execution of force from God's perspective is like the static energy of when you move dry clothes together. It's nothing. But from our perspective, man, we're just, it's the power of God around us. Satan was in heaven, book of Job, and then he was cast out from God's presence. And the force with which he was cast onto this earth is that of a lightning bolt. You start to think that when Satan's pride started to emerge in his heart, he could not exist in the presence of God anymore. That God's purity is like a flame. And the second that rebellion popped up in his heart, bam, he was out of God's presence. And the pride cost him a fall. I want to point that out because we should be doubly aware of the danger of pride. Pride in our heart kills our evangelism. We're not a worker in the harvest if we think it's about us. So they're all, hey, we cast demons out in your name. And he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I know what pride looks like, you guys. Don't rejoice in casting out demons. Right? They're nothing to God. They've been cast out in God's eyes. Instead, you should rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Praise God, he has grace on you. Oh, you're so good, you're so holy. No wonder you're close to Jesus. You're such a perfect person. No, 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 no. I'm a sinful person by nature, and I'm saved by grace. I'm inviting you to be saved by grace too. I have nothing on you other than I'm a sheepy-like person because I serve the Lord. That attitude and that humility, I think, is magnetic for people to come into the kingdom. And they don't have to, if you don't expect anything of people, they don't have to break themselves to humble themselves before God. They break themselves before God, not before you. There's a power here. If Satan's pride cost him a fall, we shouldn't want to be getting prideful about what we do. Corruption can't exist in the presence of a purifying God. Think Lysol and chlorine. Like Corruption doesn't exist in the presence of those things. It dissolves. We can't be in the presence of God and God cannot work through us when we're so prideful that we fall into the sin of pride. If we're proud of anything, it's the cross of Jesus Christ. If I glorify in anything, it's the sacrifice that Jesus made. If I revel in any moment, it's that my name is written in heaven because Jesus gave his life for me. I'm just a servant. Beautiful attitude. The, the trample on servants, scorpions thing, you can go into this. There's lots of people that get all worried. There's entire like weird denominations of Christianity on this. What amazes me is they don't read verse 20. You're going to walk on scorpions. They're like, let's bring scorpions to church and do scorpion walks and see how God saves us. And then they use basic like 
zoology to not get bit, right? And they know it. The leaders of it know it's not a miracle. They just know how to act, how to handle snakes, right? They're snake handlers. And you get this weirdness and look at how the world eats that garbage up. You know, hey, Christians, are, you're just a step away from these snake handlers. No, we're not. They're freaky, weird people that didn't read verse 20. They're just handpicking what they want so they can do and say what they want so they can be weird and use it to hold things over people. All the power of the enemy is nothing to, in contrast to the name of Jesus Christ. And we don't need to invite snakes and scorpions in order to revel in God's protection. The point is we're protected, but don't rejoice in that. Right? When Paul got bitten by the snake, you didn't see him dance around saying with a snake dangling off his arm, saying, look at me, I'm protected by God, look at my snake thing. The fact that he was protected from the snake thing is what everybody saw and recognized going, wow, God really protects this guy. Paul didn't have to rejoice in that to let people know or for, to people to see that. One of the greatest compliments I ever got from a friend was like, dude, I've never seen somebody that lands on his feet like you do. And I was just be like, yeah, that's because I follow Jesus. I can't fall if I've already fallen. I'm already broken before God. There's nowhere else to go. You know, you get Christians, we don't stand on the head of a pen worrying if we're going to fall off all the time. We walk around on a very large temple platform that we can't, there's nowhere to fall. We've already lowered ourselves. All the power of the enemy is nothing to us because we rejoice that our names are written in heaven. Be excited in that. We're not trying to tell people how bad their evil is. We're trying to tell people how good God's grace is. They're like, well, don't you think this is horrible and you hate me because of my sin? Dude, I don't hate you. I just feel sorry for you. You're living half a life. You think you got it so great, but man, that sin does nothing for you. It adds nothing to your life. It has no eternity in it. Your name isn't written in the book right now. Walk away. Jesus rejoices next. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit. Yeah, one of the Maybe the best line in the book of Luke. Uh, the rejoice there is agaleo, the more exceedingly glad. So it's actually more than just rejoicing. It's to exult or jump for joy. There's a strong Im implication with the word rejoice there in the Greek that Jesus physically manifested excitement over what was happening. Like got giddy and bursting with joy is kind of the idea. There's an explosiveness to his joy. This is our only example in the Bible of Jesus rejoicing. He weeps. You know, I'll know that verse. Jesus wept. This is our only example of him rejoicing. What does he rejoice in? Sheepy people that pray, go out, share the gospel, receive blessings with humility, and they're excited about their names being written in the book of life. With a little correction. Don't get excited about the demon thing. Yes, that happens, but don't get worked up about it. There's nothing better for God than faithful servants doing their job. It's magnetic and it's beautiful. So he does this and then it uses this phrase that Jesus did this in the spirit. So we see a lot of connections between Jesus and the spirit of God in that Jesus is manifesting and showing us how to rejoice. When somebody gets saved, all of heaven rejoices. Why doesn't the church rejoice more? We should be tickled pink when somebody accepts Christ, like giddy and bursting with joy if we want to imitate Christ. So Christ is excited. He sends these 70 out. They see it. They get it. God works through them. They're all excited. And then in the spirit, he rejoices. It's the exact same language that we're going to see in the book of Acts at Pentecost when the believers are filled and they start to do things in the spirit. They see Jesus do it before they do it themselves. Jesus leads the way. We follow. 
the Spirit of God affecting our actions and our reactions to other people. If you love God and you love the Lord and you're in the Word, seeing the Word, and somebody gets saved and you rejoice because of it, you are rejoicing in the Spirit that God gave you because you've read the Word and you know what it says and you know that Jesus rejoices when He sees these things. And you're just rejoicing with Him. It's easier to sing loud when somebody next to you is singing loud because you, you, you can sing within that. Well, Jesus rejoicing over the prayer and praises of His people is louder than anything in the universe. And for us to imitate Jesus in that, we do it. Then he prays. His rejoicing manifests itself in just giving the glory back to God. Again, showing us how to do it. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one who came, to whom the Son wills to reveal to him. So he prays by one, thanking God, two, recognizing God's nature, three, recognizing God's work. And that's a good prayer. That's a prayer of rejoicing. Look at what you've done. When we see somebody have a, a and again, when we share what God's doing in our lives as a church, and we connect on those things, thank you, Lord. Look at how good of a God you are and look at what you're doing on this earth. And you get lots of pieces there that, again, are part of where we get a Trinity concept. The fact that no one knows the Father but the Son and the Son but the Father, that there's an intimate relationship of coexistence going on. Jesus being incarnate and, and limiting God, God being non-incarnate and all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-present. And yet that sacrifice to make himself less than in order to affiliate with humanity and become a son of man is just this great gift to who one to whom the son wills to reveal to it for those that understand it and see it and god's revealed it to them this is god's nature this is what he wants he wants everyone on earth to recognize who, what jesus is and what he did for us uniquely those that follow jesus have a revealed insight because we know that Jesus is God and God is Jesus and the Holy Spirit is the non-incarnate presence of God in our hearts and in our lives. And it revealed them to babes. The 70 are brand new. Like, let's look at this honestly. He's calling them babes. They're babes in their faith. They were following Jesus and he sends them out. His ministry only lasted three years. These are people doing the full work of God, worthy of God's rejoicing, and they were not, they had not been through seminary. They're simply being obedient to God's calling. And I think sometimes believers think we need to know more, do more. Man, that's just such a, a restricting thought from, I think, the enemy or our own flesh. You have everything you need when you get done with a Sunday teaching to go talk about that chapter to everybody you know. You have everything you need. You're fully equipped. You can't mess it up. God rejoices when you do it. The simple, the innocent, the blessed, the babes, the sheep. Look at the images he's using. He doesn't need pros. He wants servants. 1 Corinthians 1.27 God's chosen the foolish things of this world to put to shame the wise. God chooses the weak things of this world to put to, things, to, put to shame the things that are mighty. If you were mighty, God doesn't get the glory. If you were Billy Graham, you, then you get the glory. If you're simple and stumbling over your words and you don't get it and you're foolish, innocent, and unprepared and pure, God gets all the glory because it certainly wasn't what you did or how you said it that made this happen. You just were a servant. You showed up when you needed to. Verse 23, 
Then he turned to his disciples and he said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired, desired to see what you see and have not seen it, or to hear what you hear and have not heard it. This goes with the consequence for Tyre, Sidon, Sodom, Gomorrah. And he's saying like Sodom and Gomorrah, less trouble in the judgment. They were, they were judged, but they also didn't have the revelation that Tyre and Sidon did. Capernaum and Chorazin and Bethsaida, they had more revelation. But the flip is true too. There's more blessing for those that see these things than those that came earlier in history that didn't get to. Can you imagine how excited David would be to be one of the 70? He'd be coming back just, man, this is what God did. And he'd be so excited. And his wife would be like, why are you getting so hyper, buddy? Moses, can you imagine how excited Moses would be to see Jesus and see the miracles of Jesus? Joshua, Gideon, Ruth. These heroes of the Old Testament that didn't see the full revelation all coming together in the form of the kingdom of God coming near to people on earth. Jesus walking with his people, the Holy Spirit inspiring them even when he wasn't physically with them. This is the culmination of a 3,000-year-old plan all coming together. Imagine Isaiah getting to be part of this. How juiced up would Elijah be if he got to be here for all this? Frankly, Moses and Elijah, you can argue, got to see a little on the transfiguration. This is the name of God that no one in the Old Testament knew what it was. Yet we do, and we, as believers, understand its power because it's been revealed to us. But we also live in a culture that uses that name like a swear word. Think about that. The name of God, the power to save, the power to redeem soul, and a spirit in which we rejoice because Jesus rejoiced in that spirit too. So he's saying things privately here. There's a private and a public element. Publicly rejoicing and praying. Privately turning to his disciples, verse 23, saying, do you see the show? Like he's turning to his disciples, that's the 12. And he says privately to them, do you see what just happened here, you guys? Get the dynamic here. Sends the 70 out that come back, you'd think the 12 might even be jealous. Well, now why are you using these guys? We weren't good enough. But instead he turns to him and he goes, you guys, you see this? And he's rejoicing physically. This is the coolest thing ever. Get excited about more people doing the work of God. And he's training these disciples to lead a church with a sense of giddiness and joy and exaltation. We got the spirit of God in us. That's the most amazing thing in the history of the world. And we have the revelation of Christ. And verse 25, behold, a certain lawyer. Do I need to even like, look at the turn of pace on this, right? They have this mountaintop experience again. And once again, it's back to the bickering of humanity and the arguing. And Luke contrasts these two things. So it's like, Man, what you want to hear, and, and you've not even heard it, God, they, wanted, they desired to see all this stuff, and behold, look, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him. It's not good enough for the lawyer. Like it's never, it, it, and again, a room full of lawyers, like all you're going to do is wordsmithing and guard. The spirit of things is irrelevant. So he tests him. The word here of testing him may or may not be confrontational. I don't want to read that into it if it's not there. The word is actually a word that's used for a classroom setting. So maybe the lawyer is actually one of the 70, but he wants to understand something more. So he tests Jesus in saying it. So it could be that that's the case too. It could also be that it's a test as in he doesn't see it. It's not revealed to him. 
So he asked the question, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What do I got to do? And, and this is where I think it's more of a conflict conversation because Jesus just got done telling them their names were written in heaven. They, already, they got eternal life. And then this guy wants to know what he has to do. And the whole lesson here is follow. It's not to do anything. Don't even take stuff with you. Just go out and proclaim. Pray, go, proclaim. Reach, teach, mend, send. It's a simple formula. The eternal idea, the eternal life is ahionios in the Greek, without beginning or without end. It's very clear that this is a, it, it's not eternal life like, how do I get a better life? I've heard there's commentaries that actually say that. The Greek has, is absolutely, by definition, to not have a beginning and not have an end. So eternal in the way we use that word in the English. This is not, how do I have more abundant life? How do I have a happier life? This is how do I have eternal life, to live without ceasing. Interesting question. It deals with what should I do? The question implies works. What do I have to do? Also to inherit, it implies a relationship or an undeserved familiar connection. And then three, eternal life, implying that you cannot inherit eternal life or be judged and not given eternal life. You see all three of those things in that sentence? It's a lawyer question, right? He can get you from any direction with this question. So be, before Jesus, before teaching, wants to know what he thinks, where he's coming from. So he takes a question that has three major theological discussions in it, and he's like, well, what do you think? Right? And so he flips it back on in verse 26. He says, well, what's written in the law? What's your reading of it? You tell me how to answer this question. So Jesus points it back to the lawyer and says, hey, lawyer, you're the one that's supposed to know the law. So you tell me what the law says. It's a technique we can use if we've read and we, and we know God's word ourselves, right? Otherwise, you're letting that person have a stage where they can teach a false gospel. But if you know the word and you know the answer to the question, you can always flip it back to him and say, oh, let's hear your answer first. So he answers and he says, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He says the Shema, and he brings in the principle of loving your neighbor, which is pretty much the book of Deuteronomy. So he brings those two together. This was a traditional Jewish answer to the question of gaining eternal life. Jesus is implying their names are written in the book of life from 70 people he took from the unwashed masses. So from a religious legalist point of view, he's looking at people that are being blessed with the Holy Spirit and the power of God using Jesus' name. And he's seeing people that aren't perfect Levites and Pharisees and scribes. So then, well, what do you have to do to get your name written in this book, to have eternal life? So Jesus answered and said, or he said to him, verse 28, you've answered rightly, do this and you'll live. But here's the catch, and Jesus knows how to play this game too. You can't love the Lord God with all your heart because part of your heart is sinful. And there's a sinfulness in humanity that starts the first day we, we want something and we put ourselves over our parents. And we say, me, 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 or my, mine, mine, mine. There's a sinfulness to humanity. So it, it is true. If you love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and your mind, and you love your neighbor as yourself, you can earn heaven. The problem with that is there's no human on earth that has earned that. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We, the law shows us what we can't do. And so, you know... It's funny, Jesus is like, well, what do you think you need to do to get heaven? And he tells them the right answer, and Jesus says, that's absolutely right. You're right on track. you got to be perfect. 
Um, Jesus isn't thirsty to get into an argument with the lawyer. That's what I read here. He's happy to let the lawyer think what he thinks. But the lawyer has something missing, so he doesn't let it go. He can't let it go. Because that answer doesn't, he knows in his heart he hasn't kept the Shema. So if he's honest with himself, he knows he hasn't done it. He hasn't been there. Verse 29. But he wanting to justify himself, which makes him the judge, not God, said to Jesus, and who's my neighbor? So he asked Jesus a question with an ill-defined concept like neighbor, and now he's coming back to Jesus saying, you define this for me. But then why did he ask a question with an ill-defined term? Again, going to the idea that he was testing Jesus. And he's going after Jesus through argumentation. And Jesus doesn't bite on the argumentation. He tells a story after this. And uh, this is tough for me being an academic and, and at the temptation of academic pride. I know how to argue these points. But Jesus did even more so and he didn't do it. Because he's not going after the argument, he's going after the heart. Which one, and he wants this person to realize things for themselves. So the fact that he's wanting to justify himself, again, there's a justifying ourself is a sin. It is a presumption that we can do that. Self-righteousness is pride, which he just warned the 70 not to get in. Don't be proud of yourself. Rejoice in what God's done in your life. So what's happening is he's got an example of a lawyer who does have pride in himself, a self-righteous person. It's the opposite side of the joy God just felt with the 70. This is like the opposite of that. It's the unjoy of the stupid lawyer, right? Who just misses all of this. Who's my neighbor is the question. So in focusing on this, the lawyer seems to be self-satisfied that he's fulfilled the Shema, which again, like, the thing he doesn't get is the neighbor part. But the other part he's probably pretty good on. Uh, it's easy to love a good God. It's harder to love those people that hurt us. So there's an inconvenience to the neighbor aspect that he's still trying to justify for himself. It might be this lawyer as somebody in his life who he feels has wronged him. Because what do lawyers do? They sue people. And they defend against suits. So it might be that this guy's whole career is on the line here. If we just love our neighbor, there's no lawsuits. So... He's trying to argue, is there ever a case where I can love or not love somebody? So he, Jesus tells a story. He doesn't give a simple definition of neighbor. He refuses the argument. He gives an example of neighborliness. So it's not a concept. It's a, it's a way to behave. Verse 30, then Jesus answered and said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. That's a, a tough road. And few fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. So he's naked, he's wounded, and he's half dead probably bloodied. Now by chance a certain priest came down the road and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. Why would a priest go to the other side of the road? Because that's an unclean person. And if he wants to stay pure and not have the inconvenience of purification rituals, he shouldn't be touching that guy. So he goes to the other side of the road. Likewise, verse 32, a Levite, when he arrives at the place, came and looked. So he gets a little closer, right? He doesn't cross the road to the other side. He actually comes and looks at him. You ever see this on the road when there's an accident? The gawkers, you know, there's this huge slowdown. And you're like, the slowdown is just because they're looking. And he passed by on the other side. So he looks and then he goes to the other side, making a conscious decision not to help this guy. Both the priest and the Levite in Deuteronomy are obligated to help this person. You're not supposed to leave somebody without assistance and help. So they're breaking the law. But a certain Samaritan, oh, is the worst possible person. 
a certain person getting back from the Burning Man Festival shows up. And as he journeyed, he came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. That's a huge inconvenience, even today. You guys, like, how many of you would give up your afternoon to help somebody? All the plans and agenda, the to-do list you got, just going to the wayside to help somebody? On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and he said, take care of him, whatever you need, whatever more you need spend, when I come again, I'll repay you. Now he's not just inconvenienced on time, he's actually giving up his resources to help somebody. So which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy on him, and Jesus said, go and do likewise. Just do the same thing, be nice. Such a simple answer to a lawyer question. <laughs> Jerusalem to Jericho, um, known for banditry for hundreds of years. It's a rough territory. You could blame this guy for going through rough territory without any protection. It would be easy to say, what an idiot, traveling Jericho, the Jericho Road without anybody with him or any protection. He deserved to get robbed and beaten. He's asking for it. Shouldn't have been walking around downtown Minneapolis at night by yourself. You had it coming. And so it'd be easy to argue this away. It'd be easy to say, impure, I can't do this right now. It'd be easy to say, I don't have time for this. I don't have the patience for this. But if you love God with your heart, mind, and soul, and strength, you tend to respond to people who need things. Because if God loves that person, we love that person. If you're doing the Shema, neighborliness is natural. So many in the Jewish culture would justify their action, but the Samaritan, not burdened with that, simply sees a human being. And instead of coming up with excuses for not doing anything, they just do something for it. He doesn't say go and pray and do likewise. He says go and do likewise. There's some things we don't need to pray about. Helping an injured person, we don't need to stop and pray about that. We need to actually help that person. You know, and hopefully you're praying without ceasing. So you're praying as you go. right? You're giving CPR at the same time. You're saying, Lord, help this guy. Verse 34, he just helps. He's a loving neighbor. The problem with Samaritans is they don't understand all the Jewish traditions. They're actually breaking tons of traditions of, that were given in the Old Testament. The problem the Jews had with the Samaritans is they believed they were doing a false Judaism. They weren't even of the right religion. So when we hear Samaritan, not only do we hear like somebody we don't like, we should hear somebody of a different religion. Right? And so, who was the most neighborly person here? The Muslim that helped the guy out. That guy was the most neighborly guy. The Wiccan, Satanist, because he stopped, he was the most neighborly. So, this isn't a definition of who's going to heaven and who's not. It's a definition of who's the most neighborly. And if we're supposed to be neighborly because God commanded us to, God recognizes neighborliness outside of our spiritual beliefs and theologies. Either we are or we aren't neighborly. And God expects us to be neighborly. We should be the most neighborly as Christ followers because Christ was first. So he who showed mercy is the definition. And again, the lawyer knows what words he's using. The mercy is to give something to somebody even though they may be deserved otherwise. You deserve that punishment. Mercy is to just not administer the punishment. Maybe this guy had it coming. But the mercy was just to... Bring in the Spirit of God who loves mercy, not sacrifice. Go and do likewise. The law shows us our sin and our imperfection, but wisdom is justified by our children, Matthew 11. 
Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. In the same way that our good deeds don't justify us, our bad deeds don't either. And neighborliness is apart from our justification. The lawyer tried to justify himself through works and actions. And Jesus disconnects those things. Right? The Samaritan is clearly not justified. He believes a false gospel, but his actions were the right actions. And so you see this definition being really nuanced from Jesus, carefully spoken. The question of who is my neighbor is answered by he who showed mercy. And if we're neighborly people, we show mercy to each other, not to earn salvation, but to be thankful for our salvation. Now it happened as they went that he entered a village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed her into her house. She had a sister called Mary who sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sisters left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. <laughs> Martha has probably told her quite a few times on her own. But so Jesus, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha. You are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen the good part, which you will not be taken away from her. I got to connect this to the Samaritan story. The good Samaritan is an evil person, a Samaritan, doing a good thing. And here we have a good person doing the wrong thing. And Luke puts them right together so that we see the balance in the middle. Be a good person that does the good thing. And the, the phrase in verse 42, Mary has chosen the good part, that good part. It's, it's not that Martha, Martha's a sinner here. She's actually showing hospitality, right? She's doing all the work. Don't you appreciate it when people make a meal for us every week for lunch? And you're just thankful for that meal, but they're working and they're doing the hard work. But we see this story right next to the story of the Good Samaritan because I think it shows us the two sides of the road that we can fall off on, right? We can be one and not the other, and we can be the other and not the one. And we see this balance. It says a certain village. Luke doesn't care what the city is, even though other gospels tell us that they lived in Bethany. The point isn't, you know, it's like there was a certain man traveling on the road and there's a certain place where Mary and Martha were. Luke presents these as complementary stories. But if they're by Mary and Martha, they're about two miles from Jerusalem now, just geographically. They're getting pretty close to Jerusalem. Martha welcomed him, verse 39. Martha's the example of hospitality. She's doing everything right. Jesus stays there. Remember, he sent the 70 out and said, boy, if somebody welcomes you into their house, you should eat what they make and take their food. Um, he's not going house to house. He's staying with Martha and Mary and their brother Lazarus. He's not trying to get into the, the most... He, he's not staying with the centurion. He's staying with the people that first welcomed him and his friends. This is not an official, not a scribe, not a Levite, not a priest. Martha is the one that welcomes him, so he stays at Martha's house. Doesn't mention a husband here. Martha welcomed him. Martha was distracted. So even though she's doing all the right things, works, she's distracted from the ministry and the service that she should be taking part in. Don't be doing ministry to the point where you're not enjoying Jesus Christ. You're not refilling on your relationship with Jesus. Lord, don't you care? Look at how... Her will for herself colors her understanding of Jesus. She's ascribing to Jesus that he doesn't care. Think of that. 
that's a horrible thing to say about God. God does care. He does, he is a, if anybody on this planet that ever walked is a caring person, it would be Jesus Christ. He healed thousands of people. He fed thousands of people. Does he care? Of course he cares. But in her selfishness, she says, Jesus doesn't even care. Doesn't care about me. Doesn't care about my work. Doesn't care about all I do and all I've endured. Poor me. Boo-hoo. And if Jesus were a harsher guy, he'd be like, oh, boo-hoo, Martha. It's all about you, Martha, isn't it? And it would become a fight. But he's not that dude. He's, he's not in the flesh. So when she says, Lord, don't you care, tell her to help me. Here's the other thing. Her distraction turns into an act of control and expectation on other believers in the room. I'm doing all this hard work. Everybody else should be doing, matching me. And instead of just being like, hey, it's my blessing to be hospitable and help people, She's extending her fervency to be a host, which is good, but she's turning it into a disrespect for other believers that don't feel the need to host. She's not allowing Mary to just do what Mary's being called to do. And sadly, we see this all the time in the church. Fervent believers holding other believers to their standard. It's not good. If you want to serve or lead or do an event, do it because you want to. Don't do it because you expect other people should step up to your level. How horrible a thing that is. And what a thing to put on Mary when Mary's actually doing the good part. She's doing the part that's sweet about the relationship. So Jesus doesn't yell at her and go boo-hoo. He actually uses a term of affection. He says her name twice. Martha, Martha. It's how we talk to each other when we just see our, the failings, but we still love them. And we'll be like, timber, timber. Right? You know, it's just we... we there's a love in what Jesus does here. There's a gentleness. It's like he's talking to his mom, right? Oh, mom, mom, you're worried and troubled about many things. And this is so common. It's so common amongst the best of us that do the work of the ministry and do this hosting. So he sends the 70 out, sends them into homes. But now we get the story of inside one of those homes, what that looks like. Don't fall into the temptation of being worried and troubled. Worry is the opposite of faith. If you have faith in God, you don't worry. If you're troubled, it's the opposite of trust. If you trust in other people and in God, you don't get troubled. So she worries and troubles over things, and she does it for Jesus. She's actually hosting him. And by its very nature in doing this, she ascribes the wrong attitude to Jesus. She ascribes the wrong attitude to Mary. And she herself has worry and trouble in her heart. This destroys her ministry in four different directions. The lawyer wanted to confirm his own self-righteousness with an exterior affirmation. Martha wants to work and please based on her self-expertations. She has an internal affirmation. Let me say that again. The lawyer wants Jesus to confirm that he's doing everything right. Mary wants Jesus to tell everybody else that she's doing everything right. But they're both in the, they're on two sides of the same sin. This pride of self that comes into it. Mary's on a very different path. The only affirmation Mary seeks is a relationship with Jesus Christ. She just wants to hang out with him. Lord, when I pray, I want to feel like you're there. Lord, when I do things, I want to see your power. Lord, when I hang out with the fellowship of the saints, I want to serve like you would serve if you were in the room. Let me be that person. The one thing. There's so much to learn and do. And we see this phrase, the one thing. Verse 42, one thing is needed. Huge, complex chapter 10. 
lots of stuff we've talked about today, but it all comes down to one thing, the good part, and it won't be taken away from her. And who's the, who's the entity trying to take this away from her? Martha is, right? Her sister, her family is trying to take away the joy of the Lord by putting obligations and burdens on her. It's not about what you do. It's not about casting out demons. It's not about compliance with the law. It's not about being the best neighbor ever. It's about one thing, Jesus. One way, one path, one king, one kingdom, one revival, one unity, one theology, reaching others with one evangelism and one gospel message. It's all about Jesus. Everything's secondary to Jesus. The troubles in our lives, secondary to Jesus. Our worries, secondary to Jesus. The people we know that are struggling or rejecting Jesus and the dust we, that clings to us, it's all about Jesus. I got to get that stuff off of me. And the only way I can help the people I know in my life is to put it all about Jesus. That's the only path. We think we got to go at it head on. Jesus says to focus on Jesus. Everything comes into that thing. If we serve the king, we will do all the right things. If we try to do all the right things, we're not serving. If we obey God's law, we will be neighborly, but we can't try to be laborly and think that we're going to do works that make us make God justify us in that. We can only justify ourselves with one thing, and that's Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. Amen? And here's the last word of this, the chapter. It won't be taken away from you. Right? Well, if, we can, if we can only figure out that one thing, it can't be taken away from us. Nothing can happen that takes us from the arms of a loving God. And everything that happens is something that guides us to and points us towards the Lord. Through trial and tribulation, through blessing and joy and rejoicing, it all points us to Jesus Christ. And that's, that's the gospel message. So in chapter 10, we get like how to evangelize, how to bring it home. And at the end, we see these two stories that are perfect examples of what we're looking for. One thing. And to sit at the feet of Jesus and spend time with Jesus in our personal devotions, in our fellowship with the church, in worship, prayer, and feasting. I'm going to add food because it's everywhere. Those are the things God tells us to spend our time on. So praise God for people in the ministry that make that easier for everybody else. I just want to point out, Martha was not doing wrong. She was wrong to expect it of Mary. But her hospitality made it so that Mary could sit at Jesus' feet. What a blessing Martha was to Mary. If only she didn't expect more of Mary, right? So in the church, we got some people that serve and make church happen. We got some people that come and they're just blessed. Amen to everybody. Blessings. And may that be just something that's rejoicing. Uh, um, Chick Eyes says that there's people that come and graze. You know, amen. Come and graze. Hear the word. Be blessed. That's what we're, the rest of us are here for. We we'll make it easy for you to come and hear the words of Jesus as in Luke chapter 10. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for everything. Lord, you are so amazing. Such a gift. Lord, we love the kingdom. We love the spirit. We love that we have family and friends that will love us not because of how charming we are or what we've done, but they love us because we're brothers and sisters in your name. Lord, we love the power that you exhibit in the ministries that you've allowed us to be part of. We love that we can proclaim things in your name and you are there to back it up. Lord, we love everything about the kingdom of God. We love the, the peace, the joy. We love the patience you have with us, the forgiveness of sins, the, the beauty of a, a sinner repenting and turning their life to you. I pray for the families in this room. 
that are with us and not with us. I pray for the people in this room, Lord, wherever they're at, wherever their heart's at, may it get, draw closer to you today. I pray for the food that we're about to eat, the conversations we're about to have, Lord, may you inspire and be in all of them, and may you bless us this day as we go out and we evangelize tomorrow. In Jesus' name. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.